This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Church is 21 days of prayer. And uh, I just was sharing with somebody the other day, you know, if you were God and you were sitting on the throne, and there was a group of people who said, hey God, we want to go on 21 days of prayer with you. What do you think you'd do if you were God? Would you be okay with that? Yeah, you'd like to be better than okay with that, right? So what a great thing. I'm so glad that you're on that. And uh, those of you who are going, what's that? Well, I know that we have, uh, we have a daily devotional that you can pick up at the Information Center. And for you, it can be 14 days of prayer, okay? So you can get in on the last two weeks of that, and it'll be a wonderful time. And uh, for those of you who are married and you're doing that together, I know it's a wonderful time. <clears throat> I've had several married couples say, to me, just what a, what a wonderful time it is, a bonding time actually of husband and wife being together and working through that. So that's terrific. Now this morning I want to talk to you about a subject. By the way, while I'm getting ready to talk to you about it, if you want to open up your programs and pull out the sermon notes, you can fill in the blanks as we go along. I want to talk to you about a subject that probably none of us here, well, okay, maybe a few of us, might struggle with, and that's humility. Yeah, right? Don Shula, who was the coach of the 1972 Miami Dolphins, who until the Patriots recently went 18-0, was the only coach ever to coach an NFL team to a perfect season of 17-0. Well, Don Shula tells this story on himself. He and his wife were, I believe his wife's name is Dorothy, they were up in the New England area, on vacation in the wintertime. And it was a cold day and the snow was coming down. And so Dorothy looks at him and says, let's go see a movie. So I said, well, okay, there's a movie theater just around the corner. They noticed as they walked up that there were very few cars in the parking lot, but, uh, you know, it was snowing and it was just a nasty day. So I didn't think too much of that. And they walked inside and selected the movie and bought their tickets. And when they walked into the movie theater, the handful of people who were there broke out in applause. Now, Don would tell his wife later that secretly, he thought that was pretty cool. I'm the coach of the Miami Dolphins, and I'm up here in New England, and even way up here, they know who I am. So as he made his way toward the seat, There was a guy in a row in front of him, so he stuck out his hand. Uh, And the guy shook it, and he kind of whispered to the guy. said, you know, I didn't think you people up here would even know who I am. And the guy said, should I know you? He said, the owner of the joint told us they wouldn't start the show until at least ten people showed up. So when you showed up, we can watch. So sit down so we can start the show. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this. We wouldn't worry nearly so much about what people thought of us if we knew how seldom they actually did. (laughs) Some of you watched a movie a few years ago, 1997. It was a Jim Carrey movie, so it wasn't anything real serious. But it was a movie called Liar, Liar. Remember that movie? 
Well, Fletcher Reed, played by Jim Carrey, was a lawyer who played pretty fast and loose with the truth. And um, even with his wife and his son. And if you remember the movie, at the beginning of the movie, it's his son's birthday, <clears throat> and his, he's getting ready to blow out the candles on his birthday cake, and his mom says to him, you know, you need to make a wish before you blow out the candles. So he makes a wish before he blows out the candles, and his wish was that for one day, his dad would have to go the entire day and never tell a lie. He blows out the candles, and as the movie would have it, the wish comes true. And so Fletcher is just frustrated all day long because every time he opens his mouth, nothing but truth comes out. Now, that's a whole new lifestyle for him, for sure. You know, I got to thinking the other day, I wonder what would happen in a church if God decided to do that same thing with all of us. Now, it's really easy to look at kind of a sleazeball lawyer and think how great that that would happen to him. But you know, I suspect that if God were to do that, let's just say he did it on a Sunday morning. And all day long, nothing but truth could come out of your mouth. And so you walk into the church building, and even though the words of the song on the screen say one thing, you cannot sing them unless you actually mean them. And what is worse is God would put in your mouth what you're actually believing and thinking. We did a little research. We came up with a worship CD that kind of does that. Take a look. Song about me. It is all about you. Now the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. This for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing, and I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1 800 Me, Me, Me. Or order online at MeMyselfAndI.com. Today, because no one can praise you like you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so now back to where we all live. Let's talk a little bit about this subject because I want you to look on the front of your program. We're going to talk about learning the lessons of humility. And to kind of get us into that, I want to teach us some what I call pride principles. 
Because these are things you have to understand right up front if God's ever going to teach, be able to teach you anything about humility. So let's move through them. Number one, the first pride principle is this. Pride comes with a giant blind spot. You know, if you're struggling with sexual sin, I, I'm guessing you probably know that. And if you're struggling, let's say, with drunkenness, I'm guess, guessing you probably know that. And if you're struggling with hate and bigotry, I'm guessing you probably know that. But the interesting thing about pride is it just comes with this giant blind spot, and we kind of seem to be the last people to catch on. Now, I tell you that because it's very easy for us to listen to a message about pride and humility and just kind of dismiss it out of hand as if that's not really a problem I have. So that's the first thing you need to know about pride. Secondly, the second thing is this. The most common expression of pride is competition. I want you to finish this statement for me if you would, please. Keeping up with... uh, You think they made that for just a handful of people? Who struggle with that? No, we all struggle with that concept. Yeah, we do. I want you to understand the chief expression of pride is competition. It's that little thing on the inside of us that wants us to compete with all the other people in our world. We want to have a nicer house than the people around us and a nicer car than the people around us. We want to make more money than the people around us. We want to be thought of as better looking than the people around us. We want to be more intelligent than the people around us. You know, the amazing thing is, we don't have a particular level of beauty that we want or a particular level of intelligence we want as long as we are better looking or smarter then most of the people around us, we're okay. But if you were to move us out of that particular environment and put us in an environment where now we are not quite as smart as most of the people in that environment, or not quite as nice looking, guess what happens to our satisfaction level? It goes down the tank. Why? Because most of us live in subtle and unspoken competition with everyone around us, and we always have the comparison meter going. Have you noticed? It's just that simple. That's a manifestation of pride. Now let's take a look at principle number three. The most common outcome of pride is insecurity. Now if you miss everything else I say this morning, I want you to get this. Because the most common expression of pride is competition. In all competition, all competition ends up with only two groups of people. What are they? Winners and losers. So if the chief manifestation of pride is competition, then as we embrace pride in our life, we're going to head down a road and it's going to, we're going to come to a fork in the road and there's going to be winners and losers. You know, the amazing thing is most of us only identify pride with winners. And it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that the chief outcome of pride in terms of winners is arrogance, correct? Yeah, if you've ever seen 
Terrell Owens interviewed, you know what I'm talking about. If you ever seen Randy Moss interviewed, you know what I'm t- What is it about wide receivers anyway? Anyway, it's just that way kind of across the board in terms of people who consider themselves to be winners. But most people in competition are not winners. In fact, next Sunday we're going to have a Super Bowl. At the end of Super Bowl, there'll be one winner. You know what that means? How many losers will there be? Not just one. 31, because all the other teams start out the beginning of the year aiming for the Super Bowl. But when it's all said and done, you have one winner and you have 31 losers. Month after that, we're going to head into March Madness, right? At the end of that, we're going to crown one national champion, and there will be 64 other colleges and universities who will all go home their last game of the year will be a loss. Yeah. Well, it's that way in life too. And I want to tell you that the vast majority of people who struggle with pride do not struggle with the outcome of arrogance. They struggle with the outcome of insecurity. And many sitting right in the audience this morning struggle with a thing called low self-esteem. I can tell you that the vast majority of people who struggle with low self-esteem actually don't struggle with low self-esteem. They struggle with the mindset of pride, and it leads them to low self-esteem. It's a really important thing to know and understand. Okay? Let's go to principle number four. God says a lot about pride because our world doesn't. You want to write a book that won't sell any copies? I got the title for it. How to Be Completely Humble. You think that book would sell? Are you kidding? No one would buy that book. Unfortunately, not even Christians. It's just so deeply ingrained in our human nature. But God says a lot about pride. I'm going to read you some verses in just a minute. And you're going to see when I read the verses, not only does God say a lot about it, He has very, very deep opinions and feelings about it. In fact, the language that God uses about pride in Scripture is among His most, can I say blunt? Yeah. When I get done reading those verses, you're not going to scratch your head and say, I wonder what God really thinks about that. It's going to be really plain, okay? Our world doesn't. In fact, you know what our world connects pride with? Our world connects pride with confidence. And believe it or not, we kind of endorse pride, which is not such a good thing. Let me give you principle number five. Why why does God say a lot about pride? Because pride is lethal. And I specifically chose that word. Pride is lethal to our relationship with God and to our relationship with each other. In case you haven't looked up what lethal means, it means destructive to the point of death. It kills the things that we treasure most. Now, take a look at what God says. Let me read you these verses. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud He pays back in full. Now, if there's anything you don't want God to owe you, it's that, correct? It goes on to say, Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him 
I will not endure. Let's read a a third Scripture. God detests. Did I say he, He had some strong opinions about this? God detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And last of all, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Wow. So that's what God really feels about it. And that's what our story is about today. (coughs) For those of you who haven't been to New Life, we are kind of taking a journey through the book of Daniel. And at the beginning, the first four chapters of the book of Daniel, the key figure kind of is King Nebuchadnezzar and his interaction with Daniel and Daniel's three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, in chapter 4, the king is about to learn the lessons of humility. And so that's what the story's about. Let me see if I can paint the setting for you. Here it is. I, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, any setting that begins with I might be headed toward humility. What do you think? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. Now here's what you need to know about that. When you first read that, you might think that basically what he was saying was he was contented. But history would reveal something quite different. And actually the words that are used there are not words that denote contentment. Basically what it means is, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was able to do anything I wanted and I was. Yeah. Now he was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled an empire that spanned portions of three different continents. It crossed thousands of miles and hundreds of different people groups and cultures. And when he was all done fighting his battles and wars, he went home and he turned all of that energy into building what he wanted to build. History reveals that he built hundreds of buildings. Didn't he he say flourishing in my palace. This guy was anything but content. Now he was on a building rampage and quite enjoying it. And Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded with the sounds of success. Everywhere he looked, there was a new building he had erected. It was an amazing city. In fact, From his palace, he could look out on the wall that went around the city, and there were actually two of them. There was a double wall that went around the city, and those walls were 56 miles in length. And as Herodotus, the chief historian of that time frame, wrote, there was no city in the world that compared with Babylon. The exterior wall was so thick that a four-horse chariot could make a U-turn on the top of the wall, and it was 56 miles long. It truly was unequaled in the world because Nebuchadnezzar was always building something new. I told you a few weeks ago about the hanging gardens that he built for his wife who missed the trees 
from her homeland. And so he built a garden with huge hanging pots that had full-grown trees in them and fountains and, and, and huge banners and cloths that, that, that tied it all together and bridges and walkways. And it, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my palace. He was surrounded by success and praise. Everywhere Nebuchadnezzar went, people greeted him with the greeting he required of everyone. And it was this, O king, live forever. Now the Bible says a very interesting thing here in Proverbs chapter 27. It says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but a man is tested by what? Whole. That's a little curveball. Most of us think we're tested by the trials we go through, right? But the Bible very clearly says that we are also tested by the praise we receive. And that's the setting. So let me tell you the story. Nebuchadnezzar is in his beautiful palace, surrounded by all these beautiful buildings, and one day or one night, he has a vision. And it's a troubling vision to him. So he calls in all of the astrologers and the magicians and all those people. He tells them his dream and says, I need an interpretation, and they could not interpret it. And so eventually he calls for Daniel. And Daniel comes in, listens to the king's dream, goes and prays, and God gives him the interpretation. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we've been through that now at least twice. Same thing. Dream. Astrologers fail. He calls for Daniel. Daniel prays. God gives the vision. God gives the interpretation. And so that's the deal. The only problem is that the dream that the king has and the interpretation are not good news. And by the way, this king has demonstrated a distinct inability to receive bad news. He has a tendency to cut off the heads of people who give him bad news. So as Daniel is standing there and God gives him the meaning of the dream, the Bible says that Daniel was greatly troubled in his spirit. And the king looks at him and he can see that Daniel is visibly shaken. And the king says, One thing that all of us need to say. He said, Daniel, I don't care what the truth is, tell it to me. By the way, do you realize that that's the beginning of freedom in your life? (laughs) Let's just say that you're struggling with some addiction in your life. Everybody in your life but you knows that you're addicted, but you're afraid to bring up the subject. Why? Because you're afraid of what the truth might be. It's not until you are ready to look your friends and your family in the eye and say, I don't care how unpleasant it is, would you tell me the truth? that you can begin a journey that will eventually end you in freedom. So I want to encourage you, don't ever hide 
from the truth. Jesus himself said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So that's what the king says. So let's take a look at what Daniel says to the king and what's, what its interpretation is. And here it is. Daniel said, Oh, king, man, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies and not to you. He said, King, you saw a tree and it was growing very tall and strong and reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and the birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. So far it sounds good, doesn't it? By the way, what a wonderful description of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because all of the civilized world literally lived under the shade of his tree. He ruled them all. It was his taxes that built roads in those places. It was his troops that kept peace in those places. And it was really his economy that allowed people to eat and sleep and drink. He was the tree that the whole world depended on. Now Daniel goes on, For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time or for seven years. This is what the dream means, your your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn. This is what I want you to underline in this passage. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. You could kind of take that statement back to a sermon we had a couple of weeks ago about knowing who's in charge, right? Exactly. Let me read the rest of it. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned... That heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So let's break that down. There there are actually two lessons that I want you to learn in a couple of observations. And the first is this. God always tries to teach us lessons through reason and logic. You know, let's go back. Those of you who have been here the last several weeks. Two specific times already, God has given Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to learn this lesson. Okay? 
I mean, if you go back to, remember the first time the king had a dream and he couldn't, uh, he didn't know what the interpretation was and it was the giant statue and Daniel gave him the interpretation that God gave and that is, you, O king, are that head of gold. But there was a rock that came down out of the mountains and it struck that statue and it ground it to powder and the rock grew and it filled the whole earth and, and Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand one thing. You rule a glorious kingdom, but in the end, it means nothing. It's coming down. It's going to be ground to powder, because in the end, there's only one kingdom that means anything, and that's the kingdom of God, because it will endure forever. So king, you need to know where you fit on that totem pole. Okay? Then... A chapter later, he has the opportunity to learn that lesson again when he builds this giant image out there in the plain of Dura. And he says, I want everyone to bow down to my image. And there are three guys who say, King, we will serve you, but there's only one that we worship, and that's the Most High who lives in the heavens, and he's the only one that we bow down and worship. And the king got mad and said, I'm going to throw you in a blazing furnace. And he threw him in a blazing furnace and God met him in the furnace and they all walked out. <clears throat> and that was lesson number two. Opportunity number two for the king to realize that when it comes to power and authority and rule, that like everyone else, he's just a human being. But there is a God who supersedes him and King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not even a close second. Now he's getting a third opportunity to learn that lesson. What is it that Daniel says? <clears throat> Here it is. Well, Isaiah says, come now and let us reason. That's the deal that God says to us over and over again. Listen up, I'm going to reason with you. And Daniel points to the king and says this. Now King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Wise up. You've had two opportunities to learn this lesson of humility already. And you, and you haven't learned it so far. So here it is. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Now listen, there we have a, a, an indicator of what was going on with the king. You know those beautiful, beautiful buildings that he was building? You think he pounded a hammer or any nails? Are you kidding? They were all built by poor people that the king oppressed. He considered them dispensable resources. He starved them. They were slaves that he had indentured through, through conquering. Their wives and their children sat at home with little or nothing to eat. And where was the king? Sitting in his palace, prospering in his palace. He didn't care. You know, history reveals every single building that Nebuchadnezzar had built, he had etched in big letters his name. He was proud of everyone. And he didn't care how many people he killed in the process. He didn't care how many people he starved in the process. 
He didn't care how many people he overworked and oppressed in the process. The only thing that matters was, it's another building with my name on it. Now Daniel says, O king, you better wise up, buddy. Because how you treat other people indicates what's going on down here. You know what the world looked like to Nebuchadnezzar? One big heap and who was on top? He was. As long as he stayed on top, he didn't care what happened really to anybody underneath him. There it is. Now, I don't know what lesson God's trying to teach you or me. Well, I think I might know something He's trying to teach me. But I don't know what lessons He's trying to teach you. But I can tell you this, that God will always begin by bringing people in your world who will speak wisdom into your life and He will give you the opportunity to embrace that wisdom that can change your life. And nothing will block your ability to hear it and embrace it like pride. You know what I've learned in my life? That most of the time, the people that God brings into my world to teach me the most important lessons in life are not experts that I would naturally listen to. You know who they are? (laughs) It's people that I think, man, that person is really unqualified to give me that message. Am I the only one who thinks like that? Some of you are looking at me like, our pastor surely doesn't think those thoughts, does he? (laughs) All human beings have that little meter that goes like that. I just shared with somebody this week that one of the most life-changing principles I've ever learned in my entire life about parenting, I learned from a 14-year-old kid who had obviously never fathered a child in his life. Also happened to be a 14-year-old kid that I was very frustrated with. Yeah. But God will bring into your life and mine people who are ready to speak if we're ready to listen. That brings me to point number two. Point number two is this. If I don't listen to God's reason and logic, then He has to go to plan B. God's plan B is this. He will take me to the school of interruptions. You know, it's one thing in life for you to call a timeout, and it's another thing when God calls timeout for you, right? And I know that many of you who have been Christians for years are already thinking of some timeouts that God called in your life. That interesting school of interruption where all of a sudden God God said, okay, I'm going to take your life and you're going to do something entirely different. Now, in this particular guy's life, you think he missed it? I didn't read to you the whole thing, but here's what happened. Well, let me read it here. Twelve months later. That's what the Bible says. Twelve months later, good old King Nebuchadnezzar was taking a walk on the flat roof of his royal palace 
in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at the city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. You get any idea what was behind all those buildings? That was a billboard of His majesty. While these words were still in His mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. Would you say that might qualify for an interruption? Well, the interruption gets bigger. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. By the way, when good old King Nebuchadnezzar was out there mooing, you know, like Clo, and maybe he saw himself on the billboards with Clo, I don't know for sure, but when he was out mooing like a cow, you think everybody was bowing down and saying, oh, king, live forever. I don't think so. People that do that to cows, we take other places. Now, seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He pleases. Hmm. So the king was driven from the palace, and the Bible says his hair began to grow, and it became like feathers, and he had claws. And he ate grass like a wild animal. It was drenched with the dew of heaven, the school of interruption. I pray for you and for me that we all learn prior to that. But if God has to take us there, He will. Why would God do that? Do do you get any idea in here that God is punishing the king? Or do you get the concept that God's trying to get His attention and teach Him a lesson? Yeah. He's trying to teach him a lesson. As we close, I want to give you one closing thought. And it's kind of where we started in this message. Why does God so oppose pride? I'll tell you one of the interesting ironies of history. In the 500s, there was a pastor who lived whose name was Gregory. And this is what he wrote about pride that he saw in himself. Pride makes me think that I am the cause of my achievements and that I deserve my abilities. Now listen to this. And it leads me to despise other people that don't measure up. You, now you want to know the interesting irony of history? You know what this guy is called in history? Gregory the Great. It's truth. Why does God so oppose pride? Well, I wanted to say it just right, so I wrote it out, and I want you to listen. Is it because God is threatened by overachievers? I think not. He loves it when we reach the potential He has given us. Is it because He's obsessed with getting the credit for everything that happens? Hardly. He loves it when we do good and are appreciated for it. Is it because He loves to see people 
cringe and feel insecure? No. Nothing could be further from his heart. In fact, he wants all of us to know his love and feel secure in his provision. Is it because he has reserved the right of pride for himself? Believe it or not, I've actually heard pastors teach that God is the only one who has the right to be proud. After all, they reason, He is God. Well, once again, nothing could be more discordant with the humble nature of God. In the greatest act of humility in history, God set aside His splendor and His majesty in heaven to be born in a barn, to live as a homeless human, and to die as a falsely accused criminal. The kingdom of Jesus looked nothing like the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't build buildings with slave labor and then put his name on them. He didn't make others poor so he could become rich. He did, however, do exactly the opposite. He chose a destination that had no throne. It was a tree. Actually, a cross. A cross of suffering. A cross of shame. There was no room for pride anywhere near that tree. So why is God so against pride? Because it's the condition of the human heart that is most incompatible with love. As Jesus would later write through Paul, love is not proud. Love does not boast. Pride whispers to me to be kind only to the people that I can use or to those to whom I am emotionally drawn. Pride teaches me to view others either as my competitors in life or as a means to help me achieve my chosen ends. Mere resources to help me build my Babylon and meet my emotional needs. Pride creates in me an attitude of judgment and impatience toward others, and it feeds my sense of personal and spiritual superiority. It destroys my ability to love them. It causes me not to think about those who are poor, needy, or oppressed. And when I do, it leads me to believe that the real reason I'm not one of them is because of my own virtue and my own hard work. God hates pride because it turns people He created to be light in a very dark world into darkness itself. For the inability to love is the darkest spiritual darkness of all. This morning, God calls us to lay aside our natural tendency to compete and to compare in favor of the nature He offers us through Jesus. True, simple, pure, and liberating humility. Strengthened by the realization that everything we have, our looks, our intelligence, our athletic skill, our ability to make money in the marketplace, our ethnic heritage, 
our talents, all of it, everything we have and are, these are gifts entrusted to us in this life. If in some area we happen to be more skilled than most, it is not because we are more worthy. We are, however, more responsible in those areas. Humility teaches us neither that we are worthy nor unworthy, but rather we are blessed, sometimes in spite of our unworthy behavior. And above all, it teaches us that eventually the purposes of God prevail. I want to read to you at the end of this chapter what Nebuchadnezzar said. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All of his acts are just and true. And he is able to humble the proud. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are your kids, and you know that we struggle with competition. We struggle with that natural part of our human nature that always senses whether the people next to us are ahead of us or behind us in every area. And you sense the insecurity we feel when we, when we finally realize, oh my goodness, our neighbor's ahead of us in some area. And you realize the prison that builds in our lives. And you came to set us free from that prison. So that we could live in a genuine humility that would give us strength and power. Power to be happy, regardless of what other people might think. Power to stand up and do what needs to be done when it's politically correct or when it's politically incorrect. Power to persevere. Father, I pray that you would teach us the lessons of humility, and I pray that we would learn them while you give us the opportunity to respond to your reason and your logic so that you don't have to take us to the school of interruption. And I pray for those of us in the audience this morning who are in the school of interruption. God, would you enable us to learn, even as King Nebuchadnezzar, so that we would come to a place where we recognize that in the end, it's your purpose that prevails. And the greatest thing we can do is embrace it and align our lives with it. Thank you so much, Father. Would you help us to be people of spiritual excellence? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.